the global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Hello and welcome back to Globalization Cafe. It's been a while since our last episode. Uh, in that time, I've actually finished my uh, postdoc at uh, Ottawa U and I moved to a new position and um, teaching international relations at the University of New Brunswick in St. John. And I've been teaching a whole load of new courses. I've been learning all sorts of new things. And best of all, I've met a whole bunch of uh, really fantastic, interesting, uh, engaged students um, here. And uh, they've, you know, helped me get on and, and, and introduced me to a new, uh, very different part of Canada that I've never been to before. Anyway, if you're still here, then I trust you're still interested in the topic of this podcast. And, uh, uh, well, there's been plenty of news to keep us going uh, over the last bit. A lot of it revolving around um, the topic of discussion today, which is on, on Vladimir Putin and on Russian influence in the contemporary political order. I was fortunate enough to have this conversation with a real expert on the topic, Simon Palmer, who's a researcher at CG. I began by asking him, how big a threat is Russia to the United States and the international order? So it's a really good question. I would say that this current Russian administration can change some of what you know what we call the rules of international politics and you know a good, a good example was uh the wake of the 2014 uh maidan crisis in ukraine the saw uh, the uh, yankovich government toppled by angry protesters uh, president yankovich fled the country and you then saw you know very quickly you saw the Russian armed forces spring into action. This then led to the annexation of Crimea, led to the war in the Donbass region. This was essentially one country taking another piece of a country using military force. This is something we haven't seen in Europe really since the Second World War. It's happened in Africa uh, since then, uh, but you know those were, those events were you know quickly reversed. We hadn't seen you know one country you know. It's carve off another piece in quite some time and then say, you know, we're annexing it. It's part of our territory now. And I think this kind of shocked people. We convinced ourselves that that old way of doing international politics was over. That no one would dare do that nowadays. Too risky. You know, we're all in our hearts of hearts against it. We won't stand for it. If somebody were to try that, it would be not just shunned socially, but there would be military consequences, severe economic consequences. It wouldn't happen. And uh, the Russian government essentially, you know, called everybody's bluff on that. And I think it caused a lot of people to reestimate, well, really, how committed are we to something like uh, what uh, Foreign Minister Canada, Christian Freeland, called, you know, the sanctity of international borders? Well, maybe we're not that as committed as we thought we were. So Russia, because of its, you know, economic size, still a large economy the largest oil producer in the world. 
still over 100 million Russians. It's a big country, physically and population-wise. Still the number two uh, nuclear power in the world, and arguably, you know, they have the they're better at deploying nuclear weapons to tactical situations than the Americans are. Uh, huge conventional armed forces, which has really improved in quality in the last decade. And a very competent diplomatic corps. Russia can still shape international events and really dictate some of the rules of the game in a way that ISIS or another terrorist group like Al-Qaeda or some you know, guerrillas in, in a jungle somewhere can't. Those sorts of groups can hurt the United States. They can terrify their populations. But what Russia has the ability to do, even though it's not the Soviet Union anymore or the Empire of Russia, still has the ability to really set the international agenda. Not all on its own, but it can prevent the United States from doing some things that it wants to do. It can throw uh, doubt about the future of Europe into the air. It can do a lot to you know, take the status quo, take everything we take for granted, about, you know, we don't do politics like we used to. We don't invade each other. We don't uh, try to assassinate each other's heads of state. We don't run around the world supporting insurgencies wherever, you know, they might be uh, attacking one of our enemies. We don't do that anymore, right? That's, that was done with the Cold War. That was, that was done at the end of World War II. Well, this Russian government has maybe demonstrated that, well, no, it's not done. Okay. So just a point of clarification that you said that the Russians are better at deploying nuclear weapons in a tactical sense than the US. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's um, yes, yeah, that's a good question. I probably should follow up on um, the United States and, uh, you know, the other two, let's call them, you know, Western nuclear powers, you know, France and the uh, United Kingdom. They gradually moved towards um, especially after the Cold War, moved towards using nuclear weapons solely as a strategic deterrent. You know, uh, nowadays, uh, the United Kingdom doesn't even have any land-based nuclear missiles. The entirety of their nuclear missile force, the United Kingdom, is in their uh, ballistic missile submarines. They can only use it to, you know, threaten, you know, you know terrible retribution on an enemy. Likewise, France has moved largely to that model. They still have some aerial-launched nuclear missiles. The United States, likewise, has, has reduced the number of tactical nuclear weapons they own. They no longer uh, you know, mate those uh, warheads to you know, small missiles for the most part. For the most part, it's intercontinental ballistic missiles launched from Minuteman silos, launched from... Ohio-class submarines, um, some air-launched missiles. But it's sort of, it's the big thing that should the worst happen, we can retaliate, and that's our, that's our you know, our ace in the sleeve. What's interesting in, in Russia is that they've still kept elements of their, their Cold War nuclear footing. They uh, still uh, maintain tactical nuclear weapons. We have to remember the idea of a tactical nuclear weapon is something, you know, several kiloton or a dozen kiloton or some people even qualify a hundred kiloton nuclear weapon as a tactical weapon. The idea that it can be used in the battlefield. I mean, it's kind of a preposterous idea and a lot of, a lot of uh, nuclear strategists during the Cold War got really skeptical about, you know, this idea that, oh, well, someone will be able to use a, a nuclear weapon to, you know, stop an armored division from, you know, advancing too quickly because, well, if, if we use a nuclear weapon for that, then, well, they'll retaliate with a nuclear weapon very 
suddenly we'll be in a we'll be in an escalation cycle that we can't control and it will end with you know mutually assured destruction so a lot of the world sort of said it's not going to happen today you know russia still deploys tactical nuclear weapons and they're their exclave of Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea. It now looks like they may have deployed tactical nuclear weapons there. And there is this kind of inkling suspicion that, you know, when push comes to shove, that, you know, Russia is going to be far more willing to rattle the nuclear saber in a diplomatic crisis than the United States will. You know, going back to those bad old Cold War days when, you know, the, the ultimate arbiter of, you know, any diplomatic, you know, uh, crisis was military force, and the ultimate arbiter of military force was nuclear weapons. That, you know, Russia still maintained that, you know, that slight edge, that slight willingness to introduce that that matter of doubt that, you know, will deploy a tactical nuclear weapon, will threaten to use it, and of course, you know, they probably won't. If this current uh, cadre of Russian leadership is anything, it is rational, so they probably won't. But there's always that, you know, that inkling little suspicion that, you know what, they could use it. The worst could happen. Okay. Well, that's that's fascinating. Um, so the, your bigger point is that uh, Russia, unlike ISIS, and it sounds like from, from what you've just said, unlike most other actors, <laughs> have the ability and perhaps the willingness to change the rules of the game. And um, you, you've mentioned the, a couple of examples there particularly Ukraine, of when they've actually done that. They've, they've acted like, not like a 21st century state, if you like. We could also go back to Georgia, another example of that. So I guess this brings us to the question then, if they are willing and able to change the rules of the game, presumably they want to change the rules of the game to a game which favours them more. Does that mean then that they're either... Are they acting from a position of weakness under the current system? Uh, or is this simply an act of strength? Or are these acts of strength that simply they want to make something that's uh, either neutral or somewhat favorable to a more favorable? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question because that's um, you know, precisely the, the sort of binary question is, is, is Russia weak or is Russia strong? That um, not, not only do we do we debate in you know academic circles or journalist circles or analytical circles, but also in government. There's this ongoing debate. I mean, when we see the Russian government do something like this, is it you know the the last throws, the dying empire, you know, sort of the death throws, lashing out, trying to hold on to what it has, or is this in fact that you know a reinvigorated? This is that something different from the Russian Empire, something different from the Soviet Union something you know more dynamic new that, that you know shares that heritage of those preceding empires but really is 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 uh different well adapted to this current world we're in and very strong now i'm going to do that thing that economists and analysts love to do and i'll say well it depends it's both all right so you know this might be the worst interview you've ever done because i'm not going to take a i'm not going to quite take a stance on anything but when you look at you know the invasion of uh, Georgia in 2008, the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, um, it it does underline both wars underline um, some very important elements of Russian strength, which is in um, what you know Russian analysts often refer to as Russia's near abroad. 
So that's, you know, the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, Central Asia, that Russia, despite not being the superpower that once was, despite its demographic problems, you know, it's still still uh, got a fairly high you know, mortality rate and um, and fertility rates are probably not as high as the Russian government like to be. It's still very dependent on you know, energy exports to, uh, to finance uh, uh, public budgets. And, you know, we know energy prices are volatile. And, you know, Russian companies are probably not as competitive as a lot of their Western counterparts. Despite all those challenges, Russia still, in its near abroad, is, by, you know, essentially without a military peer until you get to China. Diplomatically, it's, it's a very effective government. Uh, Russian diplomats are very skilled, but they've also done a very good job of cultivating ties with with ethnic populations, with elites in the former Soviet world who are sympathetic to Russia or at least willing to work with Russia. And there is this willingness to take risks that that the Russian government has, which uh, is probably one area where you could say they have maybe a decisive advantage over, you know, say Western Europe and North America, if we want to frame this as a competition, that there seems to be just this willingness amongst uh, the Russian government elite to say, you know, we will take a risk uh, to uh, achieve, you know, a, a foreign policy goal here. And in that regard, Russia is, you know, in many ways operating from a position of strength. Um, along its borders, it's hard to find peer. And we'll notice that, you know, out east, where Russia and China rub up against each other, that, you know, both countries kind of, they treat each other with kid gloves. You know, they have a lot of opposing interests in Central Asia, for example, but they're very careful to not step on each other's toes. But that, you know, Russia does have the ability to really, you know, dictate the diplomatic reality along its borders to uh, it has still, you know, tremendous economic influence along in those economies. You know, they do a lot of trade with Russia. They uh, a lot of uh, uh, Eastern European nationals, Central Asian nationals go to Russia, send remittances home. They have, you know, they, they have no military peer there, so they are operating from strength in that regard. Where they're in a weaker position is that Russia is not as influential, for example, as the old Soviet Union was, where the old Soviet Union had a, a network of you know, client state, states and, and sympathetic states around the world. Russia has declined compared to the USSR in terms of its share of global GDP, in terms of its share of military capabilities. And there is still, it seems, this widespread belief in Russian military circles and Russian policy circles that that security for Russia is making sure that no foreign power can interfere in those countries along its borders. If those countries are, you know, let's put it bluntly, are not fully sovereign. They're sovereign in the old medieval sense that you know, as long as they don't uh, betray their liege, which at this point would be the government in Moscow, they can go about their business, but they must ultimately, you know, not have foreign policies that, you know, allow, you know, a big foreign power, the United States, European Union, China, into their borders and, and, and gives those countries sort of a, an ability to 
influence events right on Russia's borders. Because Russia's borders are so long, its territory is so vast and so sparsely populated that ultimately Russia is always in a, in a geographical position of weakness. They're also, you know, still they're weaker than they're weaker than they are used to being. They're no longer the USSR. They do have to deal with all those challenges I noted before: demographics, economy, etc. So, you know, in the big game, are the is you know Russia going to storm back to the status of superpower? No. In that regard, they're fighting, you know, a rear guard battle. They are weak, but you know, in their borderlands, they're still, you know, not just the first among equals, but I mean, practically without peer until you get to China. And in that regard, it's an interesting, you know, paradox. Just a, a quick follow-up on that then. Um, sure. So if, if I mean, we've com- you've compared Russia very usefully to the Soviet Union and also to other states um, in that context uh, and and artfully not given a definitive answer but over the period for instance of putin's time in power if you think about it he came into power in 2000 um uh, into quite a, a lot of disorder and there was obviously the chechen war for instance the 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 former soviet union or russia or whatever it was it was in danger of losing even more territory um has has putin uh, if you simply compare Putin's Russia today to Putin's Russia when he first arrived in power, is it relatively more, is it relatively stronger as a result of what Putin's done? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really again a, another good question because when we're thinking back to you know the early two thousands and 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 Vladimir Putin comes into power. You know, there was the war in Chechnya, and the, the the loss of the first war in Chechnya was not just humiliating for the Russian people and the Russian government, but it exposed some tremendous weaknesses in the Russian armed forces. You know, this was, uh, I mean, in some ways, it was a repeat of Afghanistan. It, it showed the, uh, the the limitations of uh, the way that the Russian army had organized itself, where it had prioritized, how it doctrine where it prioritized procurement that um, large armored divisions, heavy equipment, overwhelming firepower didn't work when fighting bands of guerrillas in the in the Caucasus. And so you had that situation where you know it really did look like southern Russia could just fracture fall apart, that Chechnya would be the first one and it would spread. And, and for a while, arguably, it was spreading throughout southern Russia. You also had the tremendously uh, traumatizing uh, economic of the 1990s and the 1998 default uh, revaluation of the, the ruble. Uh, it was uh, you know, a, a very rough few years before Putin came into power. Now, you know, Putin did a couple of things, and he also got lucky. We have to remember reorganizing the armed forces, uh, uh, professionalizing it, very important, cleaning up some of the corruption in the Russian economy and the Russian government, which is probably a subject worth coming back to later. That helped. Putin also got lucky. Oil prices recovered after the Asian financial crisis. It took some time, but they recovered. Suddenly, you know, the, the, uh, the harsh... Uh, you know the austerity type budget budgets that that 
the early Putin administration uh, administered the uh, the very the tough fiscal prudence that looked really smart and paid huge dividends once um, oil prices rebounded because it meant the state was relatively lean, relatively efficient, still you know providing those pensions, those social goods that you know Russians had come to expect from the government. But this was now a a government that could spend. They could upgrade the armed forces. They could spend on infrastructure. They could reverse some of those cuts to uh, to to um, social welfare programs. And you know, Russia looked quite good, and you know, arguably, you know, much better shape. You know, by the time Putin left office, Medvedev came in, um, 2008. Arguably, Russia was much stronger than it than it was um, when Putin entered office, almost unquestionably. Nowadays, you know, of course, I think the largest single issue on the minds of Russian policymakers is the price of oil. You know, a lot of Russian oil, you know, is is hard to uh, hard to drill for. It's in, it's in tough geology. It's in hard places where it's just hard to do business. You're up in Siberia. That's expensive. That's, that's a lot more expensive than drilling for oil down in uh, you know Texas, for example. So, you know, Russia is a high cost producer. The budget is still very dependent on um, on export tariffs on natural gas and oil. Uh, the Russian uh, ruble is supported. It's essentially a petro currency. They need to sell oil. They need to sell gas for U.S. dollars to support the ruble to support its buying power. And that is, you know, by far the biggest challenge that Russia has right now. Uh, I you know, am of the opinion that the the sanctions that went on to that that went on to Russia after their invasion of Ukraine, they probably do hurt. Do they are they sufficient to reverse Russian policy? Obviously not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But they hurt. But you know, if oil was back at it doesn't have to be a hundred dollars a barrel, seventy five, even sixty five. Uh, Russian policymakers would certainly have fewer hard choices to make and would be in an easier position. They could deal with some of that that economic isolation a little bit better. So, I mean, I don't think we're at peak Vladimir Putin right now. Peak Vladimir Putin was probably right after the invasion of Ukraine, where he could still, where, you know, he had the mantle of conquering hero. Uh, the oil prices hadn't been biting for that long, that hard yet. But I would say that you know Russia compared to compared to 2000, much better off than where it is today. Compared you know 2012 or 2014, probably not as well off. Moving beyond the, the near abroad, then it um, the other major area of, uh, of foreign policy that uh, or, or foreign affairs Russia has been active in has been the the civil war in Syria. What is Russia doing in Syria? Why are they doing this? Is this another? Issue where we're not sure whether they're doing it because they're weak or because they're strong. What, what's your assessment? I, I think you're certainly onto something with, again, is this, a, is this part of the, the weakness, strength, you know, dichotomy. Um, I think Russia's Middle Eastern policy, this is where things get particularly interesting because the, the goals are you know, arguably a lot less clear to Western observers. They may even be, you know, the, the goals may be unclear to, to Russian policymakers in some regards. So I think it's it's useful to entertain kind of a, a few hypotheses about you know why why get involved in a you know a fairly complex 
messy war that's not exactly on Russia's doorstep. You know, it's not too far away, but it's not what we call the near abroad. You know, Russia, giving, given its history of, um, uh, you know, domestic uh, jihadist movements, you know, was it, was it wise to sort of kick up the hornet's nest, so to speak, and get involved in a, you know, a war against uh, uh, an unpopular regime in a, in a, in a foreign land? I think it's a good question. So I think probably a good place to start is, you know, this near abroad policy that Russia has, where, you know, ideally, I think in, in the Kremlin, they wouldn't want to see any foreign, major foreign powers getting involved in the countries along their borders. You know, the Middle East, you know, historically, Russia has seen that as kind of, you know, not the backyard, but maybe the house next door, right? It's... uh not quite part of Russia's sphere of influence. You know, Lord knows they've tried in the past to bring Iran into it, never been fully successful. But, you know, given the continued importance of, you know, oil to the world economy, increasing, you know, Chinese interest in um, building up a, you know, a very sophisticated trade infrastructure from Western China through Central Asia, through the Middle East to Europe, that, this is a part of the world that still matters to Russian policymakers. And, uh, you know, therefore, they do have an interest in how things, you know, either fall apart or fall together in the Middle East. And that I think, you know, we can accept that as, yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. Doesn't necessarily give us the whole answer, though. I mean, why not get involved in, uh, you know, more involved in, in Iraq for that? matter if Syria is so important because it's in the Middle East and it's relatively close why not Iraq you know that's certainly a country a government that you know has been quite dependent on foreign expertise uh, foreign financing etc to, to you know to professionalize their government professionalize their armed forces you know establish control over their territory etc cetera, etc cetera. so I mean the second aspect then is if it's not just geography it's not just you know they're close well Syria has a long history with Russia, goes back to uh, the days of the of the United Arab uh, Republic and Syria. If if Russia really ever had a client state in the Middle East, it was probably Syria. Well, prospects looked better with Egypt at one point. Syria was really the they were the one that. Um, had the you know the enduring partnership with the USSR. You know it wasn't you know to the same wasn't to the same degree that you saw uh, Vietnam, for example, cooperating with the USSR or or the Angolan government. But if they ever had a client there, it was Syria. So you saw you saw exchanges, cultural exchanges, uh, university exchanges, military exchanges, economic activity. Of course, the Russian naval base in Tartarus. You started to you see, you know, Russia starting to think of Syria as being a reliable place where it can, you know, project force from. It gives them a gate, another gives them a fueling depot in the Mediterranean, which allowed them to, you know, at least kind of keep an eye on NATO forces there. Gave them a little bit more security along the entrance to the Black Sea. So you got that old historical legacy. Now today you've also got a Russian government, and this is perhaps where. Russia, if anywhere, is really overreaching on their foreign policy right now, is 
they seem to be intent to a certain degree at trying to recapture some of that network of Soviet clients and allies around the world. This really makes sense when you look at uh, the new government in Egypt, the LCC government there. After you know, taking power in a coup, of course, relations between the Egyptian government and the American government, America being the classic patron of um, Egypt since, the, uh, since Egypt made peace with Israel, relations cool. Barack Obama, he, became, he was very skeptical of getting the United States too involved in the Middle East. Um, famously, you know, used the language of leading from uh, behind when it came to Libya, and he's been derided for it by, you know, Democrats, Republicans alike. But we saw a general kind of wariness in the U.S. presidency about, you know, supporting some of these regimes in the Middle East too much. And that, in the, the Arab Spring, really, I think at the time, a lot of Americans said, yeah, see, that's why we don't want to support these governments. They've got a shelf life. They're fragile. They might be tough, they might be mean, but they're fragile. So that class patron of a few Middle Eastern strong man regimes, the United States kind of disappeared off the scene in this last 10 years. Disappeared might be too strong a word, but certainly stepped back. And, you know, lo and behold, who fills that void? Vladimir Putin and Russia, willing to sell weapons to the uh, Egyptian army, even if they use them on protesters that's their business it's their internal affairs and you know russia is a reliable partner and we decided we'd sell these weapons so we're going to do so another way for russia to demonstrate that resolve demonstrate that listen we're the government you can rely on you need a partner on security you need a partner diplomatically we're the we're the ones you can rely on going to the mat so to speak for the assad regime at so far, not a huge cost in blood, not, not insignificant, but nothing like Chechnya, nothing like Afghanistan. This gives the Kremlin the ability to tell you know, their, their few allies around the world and their prospective allies around the world that you know, we don't disappear when times get tough. We're not going to condition our support for you on your human rights record or on how you run your economy, we're going to condition our support for you on your support for us. And I think that's one of the more compelling explanations for, for, for why Russia is involved in Syria to the degree that they are. Now, that's not a riskless policy, but it does suggest, you know, if that's correct, it suggests there's a certain you know, degree of ambition beyond just the borderlands, the old Soviet borderlands, there's a degree of ambition in um, Russian foreign policy that I think uh, the rest of the world really needs to take seriously. So, in, with, with that in mind, then I mean, is is this? I mean, have we seen in this context a, a permanent, or at least as far as we can see in advance, change in the rules? I mean, is this? Is it going to be ten years down the line, and we're we're going to see Russia even more involved in the in this way? Um, or, 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 or is it simply taking advantage of, of the, the, as you suggested, the the relative withdrawal or decline of the U.S., uh, which could re- you know we, we, we could return to norm uh, over time. Yeah, that's I think that's a, again a, a good question, and I'm gonna you know refer to you know Zhao Enlai. I'm not sure if he actually ever said this, but when asked what he thought of the French Revolution said, well, you know, it's too, it's too soon to tell. 
Um, I think we're probably too soon to tell, you know, uh, if Russia getting involved in the Middle East, Russia getting involved, uh, you know, far from its borders is largely a function of, you know, the United States and, and, and Western Europe kind of withdrawing a bit or pulling back or, or at least being more cautious, then, you know, the obvious answer is, well, it, it depends on what the United States and Western Europe does next. And in that regard, I think, uh, you know, President Trump is probably a very good thing for, for, for Russia because, uh, you know, Donald Trump, uh, though he uses very different language than Barack Obama, likewise shares some concerns about, you know, foreign entanglement. So uh, right now it looks like U.S. policy, you know, oddly enough, is got some continuity from Obama to Trump. And that could be a, you know, a good thing for the Kremlin in that regard. The challenge I see and where I suspect this might be, you know, kind of a short term or medium term phenomenon, not a long term complete changing of the rules of the game, is that, you know, Russia has picked a number of fights right now. It's got it's got Ukraine to worry about. Uh, things are heating up in the, the Balkans and Montenegro. Uh, there's still the ongoing challenge of the Caucasus, which doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. And it's not just, not just Chechnya, but Azerbaijan, Armenia, where Russia has kind of opportunistically played the parties against each other. At a certain point, you know, they've only got so much bandwidth. You know, you, you, what you've seen in, in the Russian cabinet is a lot of continuity over the years. They don't change ministers quickly. Sergei Lavrov, I believe, has been has been foreign minister for uh, 10 years now. I, I would have to check at least 10 years. You've got some continuity there. And I think that certainly helps in their efforts. But ultimately... No country, even the richest and you know the richest and most militarily powerful country in the world, the United States, has so much attention and the human resources to to handle only so many hot spots at once. And you know Russia right now, I mean I think they're seeing dividends from their Syria policy. It's helping you know drive another wedge in NATO between you know Turkey and the rest of NATO. Uh, it looks like the Assad regime will live to fight another day if if not continue to be the government of Syria into the foreseeable future. But that being said, you know, they do need to have an exit plan. They do need to find some way to, to wrap Syria up and put a bow on it and, and, and go home. And so the challenge right now is when you have this many priorities around the world, nothing is a priority. So given that we're talking about, uh, the U.S. and and Russia, for the background to this, are the tensions inevitable between the between those two actors? Um, is it simply a matter of geopolitics? What's your sort of general operating theory when it comes to this kind of thing? When you when you uh, address these questions in your day to day analysis, I mean, do, do you defer to those? Do you defer to that? Uh, like, well, it's an inevitable conclusion, or would you ever, can you imagine a day when you think, oh, this president is new or, you know, these circumstances have changed and therefore there's a possibility this would change? I certainly think that, I guess where I would default to is that 
there are a lot of things that make tensions between Russia and Western Europe and North America likely, but I don't think it's inevitable. And, you know, we can turn to the old, uh, you know, geopolitics argument. And it's quite popular in Russia nowadays. They're having a, having a bit of a resurgence, a little bit, a little bit of a moment, a little renaissance of geopolitics. And the argument is that essentially Russia, because of where it is in the world, it's you know it's in the center of Europe and Asia. It commands the, the northern plains, stretches from the you know Pacific to the Baltic. Not it's always going to be vulnerable on the one hand, you know whether it's uh, back in Russian history, whether it's Mongols, whether it's Teutonic Knights, uh, whether it's uh, you know Napoleon Bonaparte's armies or or, or Hitler's. Russia will always be vulnerable. You know, the, the borders are too long, territory too vast to ever, you know, protect to, to ever simply go into a defensive mode and hunker down and wait for your enemies to come to you. No, you have to take the fight to them. You have to be proactive. So that vulnerability, on the other hand, it means it gives you that impetus to act, which puts you in a, you know, if you can play your cards right, if you can play, you know, the chess game correctly. You have control of Eurasia. You are the master of your domain. And if you control Eurasia, you have a say in how the whole world is run. And if that's true, if that's really, you know, if, if geography is destiny, then Russia will always strive to be, you know, too strong to be conquered, too, too mean and prickly and with too hard a shell and too nasty claws. To, for any country to ever try to take it apart again, it will be, you know, dominant in Eurasia, and it will bump into Western Europe. It will bump into North America, and there will be disagreements. And, you know, I think there's some there's some truth to that. I mean, if you are a Russian military planner, if you are uh, work uh, if you are working on counterterrorism in Russia, you have challenges that you, you don't have in a, a country like Germany because of its vastness, because of its multi-ethnic uh, uh, nature, because of the, the, the plurality of languages. There, there's challenges there that you don't have in other countries. And you have that historical memory of you know, being paradoxically gigantic, rich and powerful, and also very weak, You know, being a glass cannon that, that shatters on the first shot. That being said, part of that, I think, at least is, you know, you want to go to the old international relations theory. Part of that is an idea. There's some truth to it. There are facts on the ground. But, you know, part of it is, you know, I think, in the heads of leadership both there and in the West. A useful anecdote here is, um, I don't know if you've heard this one before, but it's, it's, it's a story from Vladimir Putin's childhood. Um, where he lived in this 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 apartment flat, this rundown Soviet apartment flat, and uh, you know it's probably I mean we can imagine what it looks like if you ever you know been that part of the world. And it's probably got you know dull walls and creaky lighting and dark and dusty and not a whole lot to do. And he would uh, chase this rat around up and down the hallway with a stick, and you know. He'd, chase this rat and it was you know great fun to corner the rat and you know it scare the scare the life out of the thing and then one day you know the rat had just enough of this 
And instead of, you know, running when he saw little Vlad coming with the stick, Rat turned around, chased Vlad down the hallway, and last second he closes the door and the rat can't get him. A lot of people look at this and say, okay, well, you know, they take the analogy, well, Russia's the rat. Russia's, you know, Russia's weak, but the corner's something weak, it'll fight back. Well, I think a lot of Russia's neighbors feel that they're the rat and that Russia in trying to, to, make, to protect itself, you know, you can go to the old, you can go to the old, uh, you know, IR literature, puts them all in a security dilemma. But at least part of that is, you know, Russia thinks they're the rat, their neighbors think, well, no, we're the rat. And you put out a rat in the corner of a rattle, try to get you. So I think there are a number of factors that, I mean, they really do make tensions more likely. But the fact is, we can do some really casual empirics here. We've had thoughts. We've had great moments. We want to talk about the West, in quotation marks, and Russia. Um, the 19th century saw uh, uh, the this, this surge of uh, Franco-Russian relations, which um, exists to a little bit today, where there's sort of a, a, a streak of Russophilia in, in parts of Russia and Belgium. Uh, you had, during the Cold War, you had you had a thaw with, with Khrushchev, and then, of course, you know, again with Gorbachev. Um, Yeltsin and and uh, his American counterparts got along quite well. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and Boris Yeltsin got along well. Um, there is room for individual personalities and uh, and efforts to sort of break that deadlock, you know, they, they can work. They, you can make progress. There's nothing inevitable about this, but I think some factors do conspire against really easy, good relations. That improving relations between, you know, the West and Russia, I mean, it takes a deliberate effort, but, you know, it's it's doable. Uh, but it, it's it's not easy, and good relations don't mean that uh, you know we still won't you know be diametrically opposed on some issues on the fate of certain parts of the world, you know. And and I think the the trick right now for Western governments is trying to find a you know a modus vivendi with with Russia rather than you know all a political warfare with one winner and one loser. It's it's really deciding. What are the core issues that you know that are important to us, and what are the things we can you know, bargain on? Okay. Well, I, I assume that kind of thing would would require a certain level of trust, and there's been a significant amount of coverage in the media uh, as to why there may be a lack of trust when it comes to particularly U.S. Uh, uh, and Russian relations, um, especially revolving around the election, the involvement of. Trump, well, alleged involvement of Trump's campaign and so on. What What are your thoughts uh, uh, on on these uh, these rumors and the speculation? And and is it is it feasible? Are some of the worst allegations are they are they feasible, or is it all just a lot of hot air? Another easy question, Phil. Thanks. <laughs> you know, this is uh, this is a thorny one, and and not just because. You know, you don't want to say the politically incorrect thing, but this is one of those stories where it, it has a life of its own. You know, if you're asking me, do I think it's plausible that uh, Russian security services or particularly uh, Russian subcontractors, you know, private uh, uh, IT security firm or just some, you know, advanced 
amateurs who do the occasional bit of subcontracting work for the Russian government may have, uh, you know, broken into the, the Democratic National Committee's email servers and maybe picked up a few documents. I mean, I think that's an entirely plausible and the sort of evidence, I mean, I'm privy to the same open source evidence that, you know, the rest of us are. That story is pretty consistent. There aren't any obvious holes in it. And it's fairly consistent with um, the kind of cyber operations that we believe that the FSB and its subcontractors have been involved in in the past. Where I think the story kind of falls apart is that uh, it starts uh, it starts taking on its own life, like I said. And you know, we do this thing where we attribute things to Vladimir Putin, not to the FSB or the Russian government or the Kremlin, but it becomes, you know, Vladimir Putin some, in some Western circles occupies this almost semi-mythical demigod-like status. You know, the all-knowing former KGB agent who, you know, won, won the war in Chechnya, righted the Russian economy, you know, he, he snaps his fingers and, you know, Spetsnaz arrive in Ukraine and and things just happen and he's you know he knows the weaknesses of his enemies like the back of his hand and you know nobody in the russian government questions him that you know you know vladimir putin is is essentially you know a, a 21st century czar and i mean that's just simply not true Right. If you go to some of the, you know, uh, great books this past year, all the Kremlin and by Russia, uh, by Mikhail Zygar, you know, he suggests that, you know, in Russia, policy is really made by committee and that you have a you have a group of, you know, former oligarchs, ex-spies, uh, hard hardline nationalists, uh, government lifers who are essentially codependent on each other. And in this 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 uh, this situation together and they found a stable way to govern. But that there is no, you know, master plan. There's no puppet master in the Kremlin, you know, playing playing chess while we're playing checkers. So the idea that Vladimir Putin, you know, signed off on this, and it's very impossible that he signed off on operations to, you know, interfere in the U.S. election. But the idea that he signed off on it with the intent of compromising Donald Trump, that they've been cultivating Trump for years without his knowledge. And that they would essentially put, you know, a Siberian candidate in the White House, it starts to get a little bit far fetched. I mean, what we have far more likely is a situation where you had, you know, a few people in the Trump campaign who were maybe a little too eager to uh, to accept some some dirt on their opponent and not scrupulous enough about where it was coming from from that they maybe cut some corners, had some ethical lapses may have come in contact with uh, Russian intelligence, some members of uh, the Trump campaign team, which we have to remember, you know, is a very large organization, may have misstepped and may have gotten themselves into some trouble that they didn't anticipate. But, you know, I think we have to just be very clear about what we're talking about. Is it plausible and, and maybe likely that Russia tried to interfere in the U.S. election? Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's there's quite a bit of evidence suggested that, that did happen. What their goal was, that's that's where we start to get, I think, a little bit off the rails. Because we have to remember, I mean, 
simply sowing the seeds of doubt, especially in a political climate like we've seen in the United States the last eight years since Barack Obama was elected. You take that, that partisan divide that already characterized American elections, then throw onto that questions about race, about culture, about class, and mix those together, uh, take a little bit of you know economic stagnation in pockets of America. Well, you know, parts of the East and West Coast are doing fantastic. People feel left behind. They feel betrayed. They don't trust government. Throwing in that additional, you know, ingredient of foreign meddling, or at least you know really plausible allegations of foreign meddling, in and of itself is enough to to throw some serious doubt on the legitimacy of the whole process. And in that regard, you know, there didn't have to be a master plan to put, you know, a specific person in the White House. It only had to be to to um, throw doubt on the process in what is probably Russia's, you know, single most uh, significant geopolitical rival. It's a soap opera for for for, for politics nerds, right? <laughs> Many thanks again to Simon Palmer from the Centre for International Governance Innovation based in Waterloo, Ontario. This podcast series was originally supported by the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa and we're still very grateful for all their help and support. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global or on Facebook where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.